elements and scenarios we would never wish on our worst enemies. Things that make us desperate and feel like all life is but a shadow and that there are only gray days like a Michigan winter that will never leave. How do you have a sustainable faith when life is like that? How do you overcome? How do you live victory? How do you have joy? How is it possible? Today we're going to be looking at what our brother, the Apostle James, led by the Holy Spirit, would pen to the readers in looking at this vibrant faith that that is active, it's practical, it's not abstract, it's just not in theory. It is living and breathing. And yes, even in the darkest and most dire of places, can bring joy. We're going to be talking about dependence and adversity and why that is needed for us to have a sustainable faith because if there is no dependence and adversity, you will have an unsustainable faith. So stand with me as we honor God in the reading of His Word. We're going to be in James chapter 1. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, it's on page 1071. 1071. You can go ahead and turn there if you want to use that pew Bible. And if you do not have a Bible that is readable, uh, that you can understand, that is our gift to you. Keep it. It will, the words will be on the screen. But we're going to be looking at these, uh, 16 verses that they are notated in, in modern day Bibles. But this is all a part of a letter that, 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 that James is writing to the diaspora, the exiles dispersed across the known Roman world at the time. And just, Catch the gravity of what he's saying in the very opening lines as we read what the Holy Spirit has preserved for us even today. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, when you experience various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. And that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation. But let the rich boast in his humiliation. Because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass. Its flowers falls off and and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And no one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. And then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above 
coming down from the Father of lights who does not change like sifting shadows. By His own choice, He gave us birth by the Word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of His creation. Lord God, today as we've opened Your Word, may You use it as as the way You see fit. May You move powerfully as only You could do. May You change and transform hearts in a way that, that shows it is the activity of God and not built on the cleverness of man. And I pray that today we would see that every good and perfect gift, it comes down from You, the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. So our goal when we get into the Bible each week is to help people understand what it says and and not just to have a a TED Talk. I like TED Talks. I like YouTube videos. I like documentaries. But we need to see a source, a foundation of something good in our life. And this is where the Word speaks to us and we need to listen to what it says. But we can be honest, sometimes when we read the words that are coming off the page, sometimes what it says and what it means, there is a large disconnect. It can be rather difficult at times. The book of James is one of those that it's a little hard to miss the meaning, but it may be hard to apply it. It's, it's an in-your-face kind of just, this is, this is it. As one of our dear ladies in the connection group this morning said, it's calling a spade a spade. And I was like, I like that. That's exactly what it is. Um, it's no holds bar in your face. As I said last week, Pastor Tony Evans in his commentary on the book of James says it's no holds bar in your face. And it begs the, the, the statement, if you're going to be a Christian, be a real one. Don't be a poser. And, and, and so James just kind of cuts the quick away. He doesn't soften the words very much. He just says, this is what it means. And you would think he would have a little more compassion writing to the exiles. But at the same time, he didn't want people to get lost in the sugarcoating. That they missed the content. They missed the needed meat of it. And so as we look at what it says, we're going to find out what it means in its time and place. This was one of the earliest letters in the New Testament, probably one of the earliest books in the New Testament, written after the the Jewish persecution of the church. And and many of these were Jewish believers who had followed Jesus the Messiah. They're, They're dispersed. That's why it's called the diaspora. They're exiles, no longer in their their normal geographical locations. They're dispersed among the cities in the Roman Empire. And James writes to them as exiles. But then we not only see what it means, we begin looking and seeing how it applies. And today, we're going to look at the meaning as what it means totally. But in the application, it may speak to you in a way that you haven't thought about God particularly before or in a long time. And as you think about Him, I pray it's not just you thinking about Him, it's God working on your heart to draw you closer to Him. But lastly, we'll see, will we trust what God is saying And here, James is painting this picture for us. He he is letting us know that that when it comes to Christians, you're going to be able to distinguish between them. Just as the, the, the Savior had said, that you will be able to recognize His followers by their true and good fruit, as apart from those who were false trees, false plants. And He's letting us know this this direction we're to follow when it comes to Living for Jesus. And man, that is what the world needs. The world is filled to the brim with podcasts, radio channels, TV networks. Some of them I wouldn't trust. 
Many of them I probably wouldn't, but it is filled to the brim with good words. I mean, I'll be honest, I am not the best speaker, and that's not me fishing for a compliment. It's really not. If you wanted to listen to good, uplifting, well-laid-out oratory and words put together, this is not the place. It's just not. I'm not that great. But I will tell you, simply words from a person's mouth will not change you. The Word of God, open before your heart, can change you. But the world is filled with the churches talking a lot of talk. But they are empty at times seeing a demonstration of God's love and power fleshed out through His community. That, that whenever they see the church, they see them loving one another as Jesus commanded them. That they love them as He loved them. And they would know that He is their disciples. They would see an act of mercy towards those outside their walls. That says, hey, we're going to care even though there may not be any skin in the game for us. We're going to do it because it's right and it's good and it's holy and it's loving. They need to see that fleshed out. And they need to see that when Christians bleed, when they go through trials, it's not just a false crutch. They need to see it's not just a false crutch. That's something that they carry as as some kind of insurance that, man, if the days go bad, it's there. But if it doesn't work, I'll leave it on the side and I'll find something else. They need to see a dependence on Jesus in adversity that says, wow, they really believe what they say. I have some friends of mine that uh, they're entertained by gory stories. I mean, they, they are. They, they like really dark, dark. And it's not anybody in this room. So if you start looking around like, is he talking about one of us? It's not anybody in this room. But they really like dark, dark stuff. I mean, some of the stuff they post, I'm like, wow, that is, that is really horrific. And, and I mean, it's, it's, it's fake things. It's fake made up fictional movies and things. And they, they love the glory. And, and man, that's a big selling market in today's world. You know why people like gory tales? Because really, they've probably never had to bleed. When you've had to bleed and you walk through it, those things are not as appealing anymore. They're just not. And when we look at these trials and temptations, we're going to find out that they're both inevitable. They're not just going to happen. They're inevitable. They're, they're definitely going to happen. And God intends for both of them to deepen our faith. And the world needs to see that because... The Christian disciple is not called to some kind of easy believism and cheap grace. Where we look at what Jesus has done and be like, eh, not a big deal. Maybe worth one hour of my time. That's it. No, we, we see the deep cost, the profound nature of it. We understand that the calling to be a disciple, as Jesus would put it, is if anyone were to follow me, he must deny himself daily, take up his cross, and follow me. Denying myself? What are you, crazy? That's not a way to live. That's not a culture that's celebrated. Taking up a cross, a device for execution, and saying, this is my burden? That's not for me. Following Jesus? You mean, I like the good stuff about Jesus, but going through what Jesus went through? No way! But that's exactly what the Bible calls. And anything else is easy believism and cheap grace. Anything else. 
And what we see in this letter as, as James is writing, and he's meant to be cheerful, he's meant to be greeting, but he's also letting him know these are not purposeless points in your life. These are not just case sarah, sarah moments and, and you'll just get through it if you have enough grit and grime. It's that God is doing something in them that we can count worth of joy. And when you endure adversity, it brings the Christ follower enduring joy. Why or how is this possible? How can this be? James considers it and begins, begins by saying, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Think about how irrational that imperative statement is. Consider it joy when you face trials. And this is not based on the ifs, but the when. It's not if you face trials, it's when. And now what we need to understand here is James is not ordering us to have some all-encompassing happy, happy, joy, joy feelings during severe trials or any time. That if you just will yourself, you'll put on a happy face and everything will be great. That's not it. Nor is he demanding that his readers must enjoy their trials. Be like, this is such a blessing. Oh man, I love it. I love it when I can't pay my bills. I love it when my family is sick. I love it when my loved one is dying. No, that is not it. And he doesn't say the trials themselves are a joy. But to consider the joy of what God is doing. Thoughtfully consider what is going about in our own diaspora experience when we too are feeling the brunt of being exiles, strangers, foreigners, aliens, as the Bible calls us. People who are not yet home. Consider what God is doing. Why and how we did that. First of all, here's our, our, our first lesson that, that James has asked us to consider. First, consider how God is supreme over all trials. I heard it said one day that, uh, you know, the, what causes a, a shadow, right? A shadow is seen by a greater light making something appear dark. In other words, for the shadow to be there, it's something smaller than the light that cast it. And while we be going through shadows and be like, this is chilly, this is frustrating, this is difficult, the greater light that shines in it is God being supreme over it. And in this, God is supreme over our trials and He's helping us to grow as His image bearers. Verses 3 and 4 says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. It, it produces endurance. It, it helps you go the long route. It helps you walk the marathon. This testing of faith conditions you. And it must have its full effect. Not a partial effect. Full effect. I think most of us would be pretty content if we're honest to say, can I just have a, a partway Jesus? A just halfway following? That it's not really that costly. Like I, I, I give an offering, I, I, I come to church, I, I may read the Bible every now and then, um, I'll go on a mission trip once every summer to Aruba, and uh, you know, that kind of thing. Can I have that? But endurance must have its full effect. Why? So you may be mature. You may grow in the way that's healthy. And you may grow in the way you were designed to grow. That you may be complete. That you may be lacking nothing. In other words, what James is saying is that God is working. He's supreme in these trials to make you more of an image bearer so that you develop perseverance. You have greater fortitude. There is a toughness 
in your refined strength that you may see this as a way towards greater saintliness. That all of us are called to be saints of God, made and sanctified by His purpose, set apart for His glory. And for that to take place, it's going to go through the refiner's fire to remove the impurities, to remove the weaknesses, to make us more beautiful and more purposeful. And when James is writing this, you may say, man, that comes with a lot of harsh against my mellow. I don't like that. It is, it is not there. When Paul's right, I mean, when, when James is writing this, he's saying, I'm writing this to you as brothers and sisters. Once again, we talked about it yesterday that, that, I mean, last week that, that James had this high authority in the church of Jerusalem by this point. That, that he was known as, as, as a person that was related by blood to Jesus. And yet the way he commends, he, he has every right to say, as, as the tradition would hold, as someone who is a spokesperson, a representative, a person of high order, thus says the Lord, this is what you need to do. But he speaks with authority, but he speaks as one among equals. You know why we use the term brother and sister so-and-so in church? Because we are reminded that even though there may be shepherds and leaders in our church, we are one among equals, not elevated above one another. And he speaks as one from family. And when he says not lacking anything, he is reaching back even to one of our favorite, most familiar, familiar psalms. Psalm 23 opens with the lines, the Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. I shall not want. I lack nothing. Not because the Lord was my shepherd or the Lord will be. The Lord is. And in the middle of my trials, He is the shepherd. And I do not lack anything. We do not like trials. We do not like the hardships because sometimes we forget what they're meant to produce. We only focus on the moment and the contentment. As I was studying this message, I came across the words of A.W. Tozer, who was a, a, a 20th century writer and, and church leader. And he wrote about this comparison between the fallow field and the cultivated field. And it, and it speaks to what these adversities bring. He said this, the fallow field is smug, contented, protected from the shock of the plow and the agitation of the harrows. Such a field as it lies year after year becomes a familiar landmark to the crow and the blue jay, safe and undisturbed. It sprawls lazily in the sunshine, the picture of sleepy contentment. But it is paying a terrible price for its tranquility. Never does it see the miracle of growth. Never does it feel the motions of mounting life, nor see the wonders of busting seed nor the beauty of ripening grain. Fruit it can never know because it is afraid of the plow and the harrows. In direct opposite to this, the cultivated field has yielded itself to the adventure of living. The protecting fence has opened to admit the plow and the plow has come as plows always come. Practical, cruel, businesslike, and in a hurry. Peace has been shattered by the shouting farmer and the rattle of the machinery. 
The field has felt the, tra- felt the travail of change. It has been upset. It has been turned over. It has been bruised and broken. But its rewards come hard upon its labors. For the she shoots up in the daylight. It's miracles of life. Curious, exploring the new world above it. All of the field, all over the field, the hand of God is clearly seen. Is at work in this age-old, never-ending, renewed service of His creation. For new things are born to grow, mature, and consummate the grand prophecy latent in the seed when it entered the ground. For nature's wonders often follow the plow. What we need to understand is that as we're being shaped and molded, we're becoming image bearers of God, maturing, lacking nothing, but also bringing forth life, just as He brought forth life. We can't save anybody, but our work following Him helps see newness of life. New creations happen around us. As we are seeds planting God's Word for that bloom. As Matt Chandler would put it, a pastor in Texas, he says, the plow is what reveals the life. It is not a, a result of pixie dust. It's not. It's not. Think happy thoughts and it happens. It's the plow. And what this does is we see God's tr- supreme over our trials and working to produce us in image bearers, it helps us to gain and trust understanding. This is what verses 5 and 6 is. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, you see these trials, one of the things they're going to help us do is going to help us be consciously aware of my need and your need for God. When these trials come about, we begin saying, I am incapable. I need something bigger. I need something larger. I need someone aware. We become aware of that need. Why? Because human wisdom is what human wisdom is. It's always limited. You ever taken into consideration how limited your wisdom is? It's mind-boggling how stupid I am at times. I'll just be honest. I am really dumb at times. And yet, I will think I am a genius so often. But human wisdom is what human wisdom is. Finite. Limited. We have limited knowledge because we do not and cannot in our finite minds realize all that is happening in one moment. Can you? Has there ever been a time you've possessed that knowledge? Do you think you ever will? No. We have limited perspective. We do not and cannot in our finite minds realize all the angles. We might have the the great knowledge, but we can't see everything from every single point of view. Our finite minds are incapable. We are tunnel vision people. We have limited wisdom because of limited experience. We do not and cannot in our finite minds have all expertise and application because we've never experienced everything. But thankfully, we can trust these difficult, finite realities to the divine, infinite Redeemer. We have one who is not finite. His God's wisdom is unlimited. And not only is it unlimited, it is practical. Because He has walked this earth and knows the realities of application of what needs to be done so that we mature. It is divine because the Bible tells us in Isaiah 55 that His ways are our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. That they, they come from a greater place. And it's Christ-like. Everything that God is doing in His wisdom is shaping us. 
That verse that's often thrown about in the middle of trials that sometimes comes really cliches and it's really painful. When we hear Romans 8, 28, 29, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. For those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Most of the time we stop is that God is working all things for the glory, for the good of those who love God. Okay. But it's towards the purpose that in that we're becoming more Christ-like. His wisdom is directing that. And if we are to be mature, lacking nothing, if this is the aim of these trials and God's supreme, supreme nature over it, we need to see the work that God does for us in salvation. And understand the work of the cross. We need to see the work God is doing in us as we're shaped by His Word, becoming disciples, this sanctification. We need to see the work God does through us as we put our hands to serve and say, God, place me on mission in the way that You've shaped me. And never let me say, I've done my time. Heaven forbid. My time is till You call me home. I have some work to do through these hands of service for You. And we need wisdom. We desperately need it. And the world needs to see wisdom in the church so that we will not waste the opportunities that God gives us to mature. Never waste a good trial. Never waste a good trial. Learn. And learn what we, know, what we must ask for. That when we're lacking wisdom, come to God. And know that He gives wisdom and He does it generously. Not like, here's a little Sprinkle on you. That's not what he's doing. He's lavishing it out. And he's doing it ungrudgingly. We must know how to ask. Not doubting. Not tossed about. A few summers ago, um, when I was a child, we used to go on these canoe trips. A few summers ago, yeah. Okay. It was a, a little more than a few summers ago. Alright. Dang! I just got the burn and a little... T- Kind of thing. Man, it was, that was harsh. Alright. When I was a child, many, many moons ago, my family would often go on canoe trips on these little creeks and waterways and stuff in, in Mississippi. And, and you know, they're not really big, big waterways or anything like that, but they're big enough for a canoe. But the problem with a canoe is, a canoe, if you don't have a paddle, will just go whatever way the stream is carrying it. Because it has no rudder. There is nothing to dictate the direction. You're at the mercy of the wind and the waves. Whatever it will do. And believe me, you can end up in some very hairy predicaments where you need people to like jump in and save you at times if you're not careful. Because even in those little streams, the current can be quite strong. So we need when we ask to say, God, plant my rudder, this oar fixed upon you. Help me not be a rudderless canoe with this wisdom. Just whatever will be, will be. No, let me fix it there. Grant me wisdom. Increase my faith. Understand that you are God who does this generously and ungrudgingly. And whenever my faith is weak, increase it. Kill the doubting places. Kill them. In Mark chapter 9, there's a, there's a particular experience where there's this man. His son is, is possessed. The Bible makes no bones about it. He's possessed by a demon. And and it's trying to take his life. And the father is doing what fathers do. Whatever I can find, whoever I can go to to help my child, I'm going to do it. 
And he comes to Jesus' disciples and, and they've prayed over him and, and nothing seems to happen. And I can tell you, sometimes when you're praying, you're just in the waiting game. But then Jesus shows up on the scene and, and, and they start explaining what's going on and, and he says, this is what's going on and, and, and if you can do anything, please help my child. And Jesus answers, if? If? This is how you come to me? If? All things are possible for the one who believes. And the man, in utter shocking honesty that I think the church really needs, says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Kill the doubt. I'm holding up this trust. I've come to you with that much, this seed. But the places where the seed is surrounded by all kinds of other dirt, kill it. And in it, produce the virtues that are needed for Christian life. This helps us depend on Jesus' inventory. When Jesus, when James is speaking, he tells about the brother of humble circumstances versus the brother of rich circumstances. By the way, this is not saying if you're rich, you're a bad person. And it doesn't say if you're automatically poor, you're great. It's not giving that equivalency. It's saying that if you are a brother of meager means or a sister of meager means, that it is good for your soul because something that you've learned probably early on that many people struggle learning is you know what it means to be dependent that I don't know how it's happening, but God is with me. That's that exaltation that you get to have. But the one who is of rich means, understand that these little things that become idolatrous, you've got to watch out for because you're trusting in an inventory that maybe God has supplied you with, but is not sufficient for the day of adversity. For all these things wither and fade. And when you begin depending on God's inventory, your wisdom and your maturity is moving you to say to the Lord, I believe that you were good. That in your hand are good supplies. And I believe you are God. It's much bigger than I could ever comprehend, but you are. And I believe that you have got this. I don't understand it all, but I'm going to trust your supply in it. I'm going to be dependent in adversity. It helps us to live for the honor that is found in Jesus. As this testing purges us from all impurity. Verse 12 says that when we endure the trials, blessed are those that do it. When they endure Because when they've stood the test, when they've gone through the refining, they will receive a crown of life. It's a testing that purges out all the impurity. You don't know a really good test right now that a lot of people get caught up in, and and, and I'm 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 on there, so I'm not like blasting it and everything. Instagram depression syndrome. That's probably not the real name. I just kind of thought it sounded cool. Instagram depression syndrome. You know why? You pop up on that Instagram, it's going to show you the feed that hopefully the algorithm says that you want to see. And you're going to see people having the best vacation they've ever had. Their children, perfect. Every meal they make, man, none of it ever burned. They got money and wheels. Their job is killing it. You know why? Because it's the little glimpse of the good times. No one puts the Instagram, my day stunk. Nobody does. But we get suckered into it and it begins wheeling and dealing our hearts and we fight this depression. Now maybe you don't, you don't have Instagram. You may be saying, I don't even know what he's talking about. This preacher's talking about some new device thing. I don't even know. 
But you can look through magazines. That's the early day Instagram. You can watch the commercials. And what begins being exposed is all these things that we chase after. Rather than the crown of life that Jesus says, if you will follow me, even though it's difficult, there's a crown of life for you. We'll begin chasing after these impurities, these things that we see are still in us that need to be removed. Wickedness and idolatry of the heart are easily exposed through jealousy. And what this does when we have this honor, it produces this unswerving constancy. It shows that enduring is worth it all. And in, in Jesus there is life. You know, one of the things that shocked the early church, I mean early generations of the church, and even shocks the world today, seeing Christians that would go through the grime, and the pain, and the bleeding, and even the torture and persecution of martyrdom, and even though the world says everything about this is grim, many of these early church martyrs in their faith, they didn't suffer grimly. They would suffer singing. Because they recognized, this world is not my home. I am in the diaspora. I am the exile. But Jesus has life. Now because I feel like this is worthy of our time to consider without expediating through the rest of this. I'm going to pause right here and we'll, we'll come back to this next week. I know that's not exactly against the, with the, the curriculum plan, but I think it's worth our time to pace ourselves. But here's what I want you to know. James is writing this and calling this church brothers and sisters. He recognizes this in the early church that they themselves had come to the place where they recognized the Lord Jesus Christ as the giver of life. I don't want you to read this book and get caught up in the things it says you should do and you should do and you should do. And if I do all this, then I'm good with Jesus, right? No, it's saying these overflow because you have already come to Jesus and you recognize the gospel. You recognize that it wasn't cheap grace that was displayed on the cross. You recognize that that following Him is not easy believism, but it's coming and seeing a God who is holy and for the sake of His love, He saw the offense of sin and He died in their place. Doing what only He could do, the work of Christ for salvation, we depend on Him and He gives us that new life. We become adopted in His family because of what He has done. Because of trusting in Him alone. And out of that overflow, it leads us towards a life of sanctification, the work God is doing in us, and service, the work God is doing through us. That's why these imperatives are necessary. It's coming to that place of, this is the faith that saves you, and this is how it transforms you, is where James is going. But don't miss the part that saves you and try to jump ship to the part that transforms you. You will miss the boat. It will not be good for your soul. And I want you to see the kindness of the Lord, why He's doing this, so that you too could be considered, just like many of this family, brothers and sisters in Christ, loved by God. Because He indeed does love you. And for you brothers and sisters that feel like you're exiles in the moment, if you're going through trials, God is with you. If you're going through temptations, God will help you. And we'll get to that next week a little bit more. 
but don't miss His supreme sovereignty over them. He is the light that is greater than the shadow. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, today I thank You for the profound gift of Your Word. And I pray that uh, we would see not only is it a gift, but it comes from a good gift giver. A source that, that wants to bring about the good of His people, His creation. He wants to redeem us. Lord, that's You. I'm not speaking about someone far off. I'm speaking about You. And today I pray that we would all get this recognition of who You are and the realization of Your great redemption towards us. Today we would see that Your faithfulness indeed is great and that You are mighty. And that when it comes to this world and the pains that it presents, that earth indeed has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. Jesus, help us see that today. Help us recognize You. Help us walk with You. And let us never ever be the same. In Your mighty name we pray. Amen.